Let us pray. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It seems that sometimes even the smallest things can make us lose our temper. This happened for me recently, almost, of all places in the library. I was there trying to check out a book at the CIU library. They have one of the best spread of theological books in the area, so I like to go there and check out books and read them. I've checked out books many times there, and the young girl who works at the desk knows me. In particular, she remembers me because every time I come there, something seems to go wrong. This time, it was that I had forgotten my car card. I had left my library card in my car, and it was far too long of a walk for me to go the two minutes back to my car to get that card, and I figured she knew me, so why wouldn't she just check out the book? She was there when my account disappeared, and she had to restore that for me, so she knows who I am. The expert knew me also, who was in the room next door, and he had to help last time, so he knew me, and I happened to notice that he was listening in and kind of watching from the corner to see what would happen. He was one to stick with the rules, and I surely needed an ID, not even another card that had my name signed on it was going to be good enough. So I would have to walk to my car, but I wasn't about to do that long four-minute trek. But I decided to, so I went to my car, I left my book bag in my car, brought back the card to check out the book, only to find out when I got there that I was at my 10-book limit, which would have required me to go back to my car again, get a book, to return it, and I said, ah, just forget it. Not you, David. This shall never happen to you. That's what Peter was thinking when Jesus was talking to him about going to the cross. Not you, Lord. This should never happen to you. Unfortunately, much of American Christianity has fallen into this mindset. Not you, America. This shall never happen to you. A professor, a Christian named H. Richard Niebuhr, wrote a piece called The Kingdom of God in America. In it, he takes to task what he calls progressive liberal Christianity. He accuses American Christians of having taken Christ out of Christianity and removing the cross from discipleship. He writes that this view of Christianity confesses, quote, a God without wrath who brought humans without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. That was written in 1937. We see already, so long ago, the weeds of what actually led to the breaking up of the Lutheran Synodical Conference 
and contributed to the formation of the CLC. Trying to preserve an evangelical confession of a God with wrath, humans with sin, a kingdom with judgment, and a ministry with a cross. I believe that we are truly blessed to have preserved this confession, the doctrine that sets things right about Christ. But yet, there's something more. I rejoice in what we've been given in our church body. To put the first things first, which are so rare today in teaching and doctrine, so many Christians are swaying about with every wind. But what I want to bring home today is something that maybe we are missing out on. While we say these things, who Christ is and what he teaches, what do we know of living these things? Better yet, walking in these things. This was the case with Peter. He was able to say the right thing. Jesus is the Christ. But when the rubber met the road and the sandals met the sand... He was fooled by Satan. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and that this is a wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the beginning of everything for us as Christians to understand and confess and know who Jesus is. This is unlike the crowds, who recognized Jesus, but not for who he was. They called him a miracle worker, a prophet, a teacher. In some ways, they were following him. The crowds were wandering along, trying to find Jesus. And they were happy with this sort of Jesus who would work miracles for them, who would fix things. In fact, they would have made their king, him their king if they could have. They were fooled into turning Jesus into a king who fixes things. Just fix it, Jesus. Our prophet... As our prophet, the crowds wanted Jesus to coerce the outcome into their favor. As their magician, they wanted him to remove their discomforts. As a politician, they wanted him to direct the world into a better place, a happier state, to take away hunger and remove all our problems. But Jesus was not interested in any of this. That's why he turns from the crowds to Peter and says, well, who do you say that I am? That's what he wants to get the disciples thinking about. Not just what the crowds are saying, but to know Jesus on a whole nother level, separate from the world. Not just a prophet, not just a miracle worker, not just a politician, but the Christ. And that's what we confess, that Jesus is the king. But he here takes it a step further. He says, okay, follow me. It appears Peter was not ready for what Jesus had to say. Like the blind man from last week, he got some of it figured out, but it was still fuzzy. The walk into discipleship is not really the walk until we step onto the path. And when we step onto the path, we trip over the cross. Jesus responds to Peter's confession with a revelation of three passion predictions in chapters 8 through 10. A pivot, a crucial point where Jesus is turning, he's leaving Caesarea Philippi, 
He's going south through Galilee, and he's ending up at Jerusalem. Peter pulls Jesus aside. He needs a special conference between him and Jesus. He's the leader of the disciples. And he needs to straighten this out and begins to tell Jesus that the outcome that Jesus is imagining is incorrect. This cannot happen to you. Not you, Lord. Not you, David. Surely you have not come for this degrading outcome and ending. Not just having to walk back to your car a second time, but to have to walk to the cross and to rejection. This reflects the outlook Satan has so cunningly worked into our supposed Christian nation. In fact, he's done it so well that even the unbelievers can recognize it. An unbelieving philosopher and a professor at Princeton named Richard Rorty identifies this already in the 1960s. He's not a Christian, and yet he finds in Christianity something he can believe in. And this professor says, I'm delighted that liberal theologians do their best to do what the Pope said shouldn't be done. They try to accommodate Christianity to modern science, modern culture, democratic society. If I were a fundamentalist Christian, I'd be appalled by the wishy-washiness of the liberal version of the Christian faith. But since I am a non-believer who is frightened of the barbarity of many fundamental Christians, I will welcome theological liberalism. Maybe liberal theologians will eventually produce a version of Christianity so wishy-washy that nobody will be interested in being a Christian anymore. It is this wishy-washiness that has allowed us to the point where our nation is ready to pass a bill into legislation that will approve of boys competing in girls' sports and joining them in the locker room afterwards. But this is nothing new. It's just the newest. Richard Rorty said those things already in the 1960s, and he didn't even believe. Nierberger was writing about these things in the 1940s. And even before all that, a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was seeing the very same thing in the 1930s when he came to America. Interestingly, the book that I was trying to check out in preparation for the sermon was by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it was called The Cost of Discipleship. I was about to just give up and leave the book behind. Another trip to my car and the inconvenience is just a small example of how our one-click, self-centered culture of creature comforts has no time for the cross. Bonhoeffer would not have been surprised. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran theologian from, the, from Germany who eventually was hunted down, imprisoned, and executed for standing against the Nazis and Hitler. Eventually, earlier in his student years, he traveled to America to attend Union Theological Seminary in New York, he was struck there by the very observation about this teaching at that Christian seminary. And he wrote a letter home 
saying there is no theology here. The lack of seriousness with which the students speak of God and the world is, to say the least, extremely surprising. The theological atmosphere of union is accelerating the process of the secularization of Christianity in America. In New York, they preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed, or is addressed so rarely that I have yet been unable to hear it, namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. Notice the last phrase. Not life and death, but death and life. Bonhoeffer learned the way of Christ is the way of death and then life. This is what Jesus is teaching us about discipleship. It is more than just saying his name, but living in that name. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and so did Union Theological Seminary. What they failed to grasp is what that meant for our lives. To follow Christ where he goes. To go with him. And Peter tried to take Jesus aside to tell him otherwise. But Jesus says it was no longer Peter that was speaking at that point. Instead, it was the enemy. Sowing lies and deception and trying to do it in secret. To see if Jesus would allow this one lie that he doesn't really need or deserve to go to the cross, to allow that one lie to remain in the back of his mind. But the theology of the cross requires that this be brought out into the open and exposed. When the cross is being denied, Jesus must bring it out into the open. And so what he does is he turns from Peter to his disciples and looks at them and turns his back on Peter, and to all his disciples, he announces it publicly that this is a lie. Satan wants to hide these statements in secret in our lives where they can be allowed to remain. Not you. Should never happen to you. He wants us to compartmentalize God into one part of our lives, which is relatively secret and relegated to Sunday mornings, And deal with all the other stuff, the more doable stuff, the details and dealings of daily life, the goals and outcomes that will further ourselves, the preservation of our creature comforts, wanting others to serve us so we don't have to walk toward the cross or our car. Jesus pulls this statement out of darkness, turns his back on the lie, and says to his disciples, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things and the way that men think. Now he opens it up to all the crowds, it says. Now he brings in all the world to let everyone know without reservation what it means to follow him so they aren't fooled. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what profit 
is it to a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We see here that there is an outward death and an inward death. Denying yourself is an inward death. It is an inward discipleship which begins at the end of yourself. Spiritually, it means repentance, giving up on yourself, putting down your old self with all its corrupted and deceitful ways in any way that it would whisper, not you. The will and the focus of our flesh is on the things of man, on the outcomes that we imagine, on the path we're walking. All of this is gone. Inwardly, we must become as though we are nothing and not know where we are going, why, or what it will take to get there. Then outwardly, we also have a death, which is the cross. It is the outward way that suffering is placed upon us to teach us this and accepting it willingly. It is not on us first, though. It is first on Christ. This is about him. It is about following him. He is on the journey from Caesarea to Galilee to Jerusalem. And we can only know who he is by taking that step and following that path, not even knowing what this means to where he is going until we get there. What is he saying? What is he doing? What is his manner? It is one foot in front of the others until we are on our knees at the foot of the cross, looking at the one who lost it all. He lost his life. He lost the world, but he saved your soul. His life is the redemption price, and it is a costly price. It is a precious and holy blood that he sheds. And this is why Bonhoeffer called it costly grace. Bonhoeffer wrote about this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, where he talks about the difference between a costly grace and cheap grace. What he saw in the New York Seminary was the preaching of a cheap grace. In Germany, he observed the same thing. They would preach in the Lutheran churches a justification which declared your sins forgiven, but then expect no demands of you, no requirements, no changes. He says that preaching had corrupted the state into a Christianity of the state, a religion which could appeal to so many because it was ashamed of Christ. It was ashamed of the costliness and the demand of Jesus' call to follow him. It offered grace for the sake of endorsing more sinning. It was a cheap grace. And so he wrote, cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. If indeed we are looking at the work of Mark right now, and if indeed we are talking about Mark who lived in Rome at the time that the church was being persecuted by Nero, 
where he's burning down the city and blaming it on Christians, then we know how important this message is to those Christians. Because when whether you're living through persecution or you're being prepared for persecution, you have to lay hold of the costly grace and not be deceived. The cost is great. And Jesus faced the worst. Walking with Jesus means looking to him, relying on him, listening to him to endure everything. Going with him to the cross, watching him die and waiting patiently by the tomb till you see him again. Victorious, risen. It is the whole basis for the gospel. It is to face this world's foolishness, call out Satan's lies, deny yourself, and believe in the good news. Jesus is victorious. Cling to him, even if you don't know what comes next. We don't determine the outcomes or the directions of our lives. We are just... just with him. So let me say that it is worth going back to your car. Going back again, repeating the steps, finding out where you went wrong, repenting. And then walking with Christ. After all, I was the one that was really wrong in the first place. But I wanted an exception. I wanted to be special. I didn't want to admit the limits that they had placed on me. And we need to realize that we are no exception. And we have reached the limit. And all that is left is Jesus. What a foolish waste it would have been to see a pastor loses temper in a library trying to check out a Christian book. Instead, I came back the second time and decided to bring the extra book with me, return it, so that I could get that book, The Cost of Discipleship. And I told the librarian, huh, sounds like a sermon illustration for Sunday. How much more so true is it in the weightier matters of our relationships in our lives with one another and our relationship with the eternal God than just a librarian? By denying yourself, you will truly discover who he is, what it means to call him the Christ, your king, what it means to follow him, what it means to have the costly grace as we just sang in that hymn, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.